it's not that indigenous people never adopted these toxic Western-like belief systems, and it's not that those toxic belief systems are inherently embedded in a Western mindset, but it is that this thought form, if you will, this group thought form of separateness, segmentation, dissection, and reductionism has a magnetism and a pull and a hold on society, and it happens to be embedded and articulated through a language of Western science, religion, and culture. Greetings, future fossils. Welcome to episode 164 of the podcast that explores our place in time. I'm Michael Garfield, and before we get started, I'd just like to apologize to all of the regular listeners of this program for being so grievously late with this episode. People who have been following me on social media or in the Discord server know that my car was totaled in a hit-and-run on St. Patrick's Day, five blocks from my house, and one week before my daughter's second birthday, Our car was flipped on its side by a van that ran a stop sign in broad daylight and launching me into not only a scramble to put the pieces back together, visit urgent care, get myself a new vehicle, thank whatever cosmic forces ensured that my car was smashed into only a foot away from my daughter's car seat and yet she came to no physical harm and continue working full-time through all of this. For these and other reasons, it's becoming increasingly untenable for me to not only research and record every episode of the show, but edit them as well. I have some amazingly talented friends that have agreed to come on and assist with the excruciatingly detailed work of post-production for Future Fossils. So for this reason, among many others, it is now a priority for me to ensure that I can grow the paid subscribership of Future Fossils on Patreon in order to support my friends and allies in the work they do to help me bring you the most meaningful and illuminating conversations that we possibly can. I've never gone an entire month without releasing a Future Fossils episode, and it feels extremely weird. That said, the Facebook group and the Discord server have been completely popping off, and I want to give my love and my appreciation to everybody who has been enriching the conversations in those places, as well as to the new patrons that have come on since the last episode, Scott McGee, Jennifer Huff, Nicholas Beam, Micah Daigle, Matthew Banks, and Joel Guns, all of whom I hope I will see this Sunday in the Future Fossils Book Club when we meet to discuss Greg Egan's splendid science fiction novel, Distress. If you'd like to be a part of that book club and other patrons-only channels in the Discord server, as well as the recipient of early and exclusive art, music, and writing please hop on over to patreon.com slash Michael Garfield and make yourself heard. And now I'd like to launch into a little bit of a preamble 
to this episode, which is long, long overdue, not only because I recorded it in September, but because this week's guest, Violet Luxton, is one of my oldest and dearest friends, in no small part because of the generative distance between our perspectives that enables truly meaningful intercultural discourse. I wanted to get Violet on the show in order to talk about an essay that she wrote, Transtemporality and the Technology of Indigenous Kinship, the Science of Remembering Ourselves. Violet is the Assistant Director of Admissions at Claremont Graduate University, where she works with the Office of Student Engagement, helps represent Indigenous issues, organizes events and art projects, and advocates for the land back movement, promotes sustainability, ecofeminism, and social justice that center indigenous contributions to society, employs indigenous perspectives as well as Afrofuturism in both her social work and her writing, music, and art. And as you will hear in this episode, anchors in her own mixed indigeneity in order to reach into some truly profound visions about the future of our species and of the biosphere. Violet has also been an instrumental catalyst at key turning points in my own life, as we will discuss. But first, I want to read you the opening to her essay that we reference in this episode. Here we go. Technology is evolving and continually renders what has heretofore been categorized as life, death, self, gender, and the environment scientifically up for review in ways previously unimaginable. Societal pressures from the current pandemic to systemic racism and socioeconomic inequalities similarly signal to us that the current ways of categorizing ourselves and our environment are insufficient. Prominent social philosopher William Irwin Thompson elaborates on this in his article, The Borg or Borges. Quote, Mechanists and mystics alike refer to our current epoch as a great bifurcation in human evolution, like ancient mitochondria or chloroplasts surrounded by the gigantic eukaryotic cell. We are about to be engulfed in the next evolutionary stage. So the mechanists see noetic technologies surrounding human culture and consciousness and compressing it into an endosymbiont in a larger and swifter and more elegant evolutionary vehicle." End quote. In the same vein, professor of Asian American Studies and scientific translator Kathleen Yep uses the term a wider container to denote the expanded sense of self necessary to survive the planetary challenges of our current epoch. Without this expanded sense of self, our fortuitous opportunity for growth, or what Thompson refers to as a larger and swifter and more elegant evolutionary vehicle, could easily spiral into ever greater magnitudes of famine, war, death, and decay. I argue in this paper that conversations around avoiding such catastrophes are predicated on sustainable living practices that cannot sufficiently be ushered in without the traditional ecosystemic knowledge and wisdom traditions of indigenous people. It was Afro-Indigenous communities that successfully safeguarded what I refer to as relational technologies for thousands of years despite attempts by what revolutionary scholar Angela Davis calls a white supremacist racial caste system to delegitimize indigenous thought by the threat of bodily harm and numerous attempts at extermination. Much of the jargon around sustainability touted by scientists and activists alike 
are borrowed from thousand-year-old indigenous pedagogies. However, the logic connecting this thought to modern modes of healing ourselves and our communities is obscured by colonial practices of erasure that limit indigenous people's access to quote-unquote legitimate platforms of discourse such as the academy, popular media, and various channels of government. Stereotypes of primitivity are paramount to perpetuating the myths of Western quote-unquote advancement that attest indigenous people lacked rigorous schools of scientific practice. I will demonstrate below that the history of empirical science is longer for indigenous peoples than Western schools of thought, and that it is unacceptable to have a conversation around environmental and social justice without mentioning indigenous land rights and sovereignty in the same sentence. If not, those in power will continue profiting from indigenous labor while simultaneously contributing to its erasure when they give Western scholars credit for indigenous knowledge. Likewise, we cannot ignore quote-unquote discoveries of scientific knowledge, morbidly mirror the quote-unquote discovery of land and people credited to European explorers, despite being previously cultivated by indigenous people and preserved for tens of thousands of years by their scientific prowess. So yeah, this is an extremely powerful essay, and I highly recommend that you trip on over to the show notes for this episode, wherever you happen to be listening, or just look up Violet Luxton on medium.com and read this piece in its entirety. This is without question an urgent and vital conversation, and our all-too-brief hour of dialogue in this episode really only begins to scratch the surface of Violet's essay, as well as the wisdom that she embodies and the wisdom with which she is surrounded in her work. Much more can and should be said about these topics, and I highly encourage you to join the Future Fossils Discord server and participate in the follow-up conversation to this episode yourself. And with that, I've already gone on far too long for this intro. Thank you for your patience. Thank you for listening, and enjoy this dialogue with my friend Violet Luxton. Can we just dive in? Yeah, let's go for it. I have this extraordinary draft of an essay from you on transtemporality and the technology of indigenous kinship, the science of remembering ourselves. This is a really powerful piece of writing, and I think it's important for people to understand that you, first of all, were the one who nudged me back towards SFI uh, when my friend Mitch Mignano, who lives here with me in Santa Fe and has been on the show before, and I came through California in the summer of 2017 during the Oregon Eclipse Burning Man thing when he and I were on a trip for that. And there is so many rhyming elements of this moment with that moment three years ago as well as with many other moments that I think are going to come up in this conversation very probably further back in in time. And so I feel like this conversation, I hope, makes sense to people because it is the tying of a bow of a certain order, a kind of consummation of a very important and powerful... I I think that right now I've been seeing a lot of parallel lines and the weave Warp and Woof have been folding into the same thing, which is, it really does feel like this moment is of a, a special importance. And I 
I'm really honored that I finally get to have you on the show to discuss this and to discuss your essay, which is profound and powerful and gestures toward a new way of integrating a schism in the psyche of our our planet, our cosmos. And I think that this is really important. So, hello. <laughs> Hi, Michael. Beautiful introduction. Thank you for those words. I am happy to be here. Um, allow me to introduce myself in my traditional way. So, meiha, ekwaha, awashkomeha, nawaniane, tekorhaki, sadoach. Hello, I'm happy to be here. My name is Woman Who Speaks. I was named in Tongva by Tongva elder Julia Bogany, who is my godmother. And I have Penobscot heritage on my father's side and European heritage. And European heritage and First Nations from Sinaloa, particularly La Brecha and Wasave in Mexico, and La Paz. So uh, very maritime peoples on both sides, uh, which is the land that I'm on, on uh, maritime peoples of the Tongva and uh, shared Kij, Serrano, Kawia territories. I actually have a land acknowledgement I would love to read, if that's all right. Since we are on Tongva land, this was written by my elder, Elder Julia Bogany, who named me. And we can find out what native land you're on. I actually have a phone number that if you text it, it will tell you the native territory you're on. But I, I know what territory I'm on. I'm on Tongva territory. And this was written by my elder, Julia Bogany, uh, just to acknowledge that we are on native land wherever we're at right now and wherever we're listening to, to really honor that indigenous relationship to the land we're on and the people that sacrifice to keep it. So this land acknowledgement was written by elder Julia Bogany, member of the Tongra Gabolino Band of Mission Indians. We, the indigenous people, the traditional caretakers of this landscape are the direct descendants of the first people who formed our lands, our world during creation time. We have always been here. Our ancestors prepared and became the landscapes, the worlds for the coming of humans with order, knowledge and gifts embedded in the landscape. Our ancestors imbued with responsibility and obligation to our original instructions, guided by protocol and etiquette to be a part of take care of and ensure the welfare of the extended family and community defined in its most inclusive expression, the nature and capacity of teachings and responsibilities onto our children, grandchildren, and many generations to come and to all that now live here. Thank you for letting me say that, Michael. I just think that it's important to acknowledge and remember that no matter where we go in the United States, there's really no place that was discovered. Indeed. You know, that's really the theme I think here, which is that it's not just the United States, it's the entire world is historied in a way that is constantly exfoliating and revealing itself and that it is of the utmost importance that we find and identify that we are mindful enough to be aware of those agencies, be they people in the traditional sense of the term, or be they non-people that carry these histories. And, you know, something that I found really powerful about 
this particular essay was in your discussion of LaDonna's dislocation from the Missouri River by the U.S. government and in the, the building of the Dakota Access Pipeline. This this piece about the importance of the land, not simply as a romantic sort of fascination, but literally as a scaffolding for the memory of the people that live upon it. And that it's a powerful spin on the way that we think about who we are as individuals, quote unquote, when we realize that our memories are scaffolded in this way. And so like, there's something about this piece, which is in many ways, a very scathing critique of reductionist science as an instrument of the colonialist mentality is also, I think, sort of extending a hand to point to the way that the kind of science that I find interesting and the kind of science that my affiliation with you wove me back into the fold of at SFI is, you know, this, this study of complex adaptive systems is a study of the way that that sense of individuality must be interrogated. And in this piece, you talk about people like Timothy Morton, uh, Rice University philosopher who coined the phrase hyperobjects to describe these vast, complex things like climate change or radiation that we cannot see all at once, and yet in which we participate that transcend us spatiotemporally. And, you know, you say that there is no need for concepts like this from an indigenous point of view. And yet, I think that the fact that these concepts exist for me is a ray of hope because they indicate that this circular bounded epistemology of interbeing is regaining prominence in a world that recognizes that there are no true externalities and that science in the 21st century is twisting in the words of David Bowie it's, it it turn and face the strange it is turning to acknowledge its other self that we are now aware that we cannot as, as William Irwin Thompson who you quote extensively in this essay and we've had on the show has been stating for decades that this became obvious when we realized that nuclear fallout blows over and this is very much a uh, like an, an art of war kind of there's no way to win a war without harming yourself and so there's a circularity here that is implicit actually explicit in the very logo of SFI i find this design puzzling i haven't managed to get to the root of this and to actually figure out how this design was decided upon in the year of my birth 1984 by a bunch of former Los Alamos scientists and Nobel laureates who came together to study the fundamental mysteries of the cosmos. But they knew that the linear modes were insufficient. It is evidence of the same gesture coming from the other side of this effort to acknowledge that there is no other and that a, the science of the 21st century must be a science of radical non-separation. End rant. All right. 
Well, I think that, you know, you hit it right on the head. Um, and every time you say radical non-separation, it, it really gives me joy and is like such a healing phrase. But um, I think what you so eloquently stated there is very specific to a, a Western mental model of healing. So one of the things that really intrigued me and fascinated me and puzzled me quite a bit was how, I guess when, you know, you're kind of looking at your own subjective experience of healing until you encounter another mode, you really think that that might be all there is, or you might think that that might be how everyone heals. And so I think that it's really important to differentiate between how people who are non-native or people who might have grown up in urban colonial environments or native people. And then within native people, native people who grow up on the res versus in urban environments, uh, everyone has their own healing journey. And sometimes what can be healing to non-native Western conditioned individuals, for example, certain labels, certain ways of looking at ourselves, creating hyper objects, to turn and face that strange so that we can really name and tame and heal those parts of ourselves that we erased, those shadows, is healing work. But I feel if you have never been separated, for some people, colonization has affected very differently. And they haven't had the linguistic conditioning that we have had. So the way that we describe linguistically and crawl out of that box, if you will, of our own oppression might actually, the way that we are restitching ourselves or, or mending, reweaving our reality and our signifiers to create some kind of mat or something to crawl out of this pit or trap, colonial darkness, if you will, might actually be something that severs another person and cuts them. Uh, so I think the tool maybe that we're using linguistically, that surgical knife that we're kind of cutting away the cancer of our own mental viruses can actually be a tool that cuts a person if they have never had that severance. So the language of duality and polarization that we really need to create non-dual signifiers for, if a person mentally, maybe in their culture, they haven't experienced that separation Speaking to them in terms of a post-radically non-separate language can sometimes be confusing and can, and can actually hurt them and harm them. And so I think it's important to remember, I don't know if it was Theodore Adorno that said this, but it was like that postmodern mentality when we were really confronted with the, the violence and the destruction in our language and our systems. Uh, and kind of after World War One, that, you know, people were questioning language and saying, we're damned if we do, damned if we don't, like... And I think in that, in that case, like we mustn't, and yet we must like, yes, there is a certain element of violence in our language. And I think that creating terms like hyper objects is healing and has value, but I think it, it can't be mapped on to every, every culture because some cultures haven't lost that connection and they haven't had to create a signifier to bridge that boundary. So it would just be like superfluous to them. So I think it's really important to know your positionality and where you're healing from and what your what your healing needs are and how you can articulate that to yourself to create that liberated mentality within you but to also be mindful of who you're with and where they're at and maybe what is healing for you and what really liberates you and makes you feel free 
is that harming another person or is that, how, how is that in contact with their own healing journey? And that takes actively seeking. That takes a lifetime of constantly keeping that in mind, I'd say. Yes. So throughout this essay, you point out how the holism, the unbroken continuity, an indigenous way of being differs from the rationing and partitioning of the Western mind, at least like historically, modernity. Let's just call it modernity, all right? Because obviously there is much to be said about European indigeneity and the displacement of those peoples. And we actually talked about that extensively in the book club conversation that we had about Octavia Butler's Lilith's Brood that is up on Patreon. But it seems as though there's like a yin-yang going on here where within that holism, there is still a profound schism. And it is the, the way that you write about indigeneity in this essay being drawn in such sharp contrast to the Western mind belies its own dualism. It belies its own shadow of fragmentation, othering, and understandably so, because this is absolutely, I would say, the natural outcome of trauma and oppression. Mm-hmm. But I, I would just love to hear you speak to that and and how you reconcile those things. Mm. Um, can you uh, restate the question a little bit? Yeah. So, you know, if you say the indigenous worldview sees everything as interconnected and whole and the colonialist worldview sees everything as separate, that seems to me to speak to a struggle that perhaps you and I both, as the descendants of both colonists and indigenous peoples, are trying to reconcile and like integrate in our own bodies, in our own lives, and in this very conversation. Mm. So what do you think about that? Well, I think it's interesting in terms of our own bodies that you said too, because my particular ancestry has... Eastern from Nova Scotia, Penobscot area, all the way to Western, so Northeastern to Southwestern indigeneity. So it really is kind of um, talk about like the eagle and the condor connecting North and South. There is that integration within me. And then there is that settler colonial European element that I I reconcile. And I think the one I particularly use the term um, Western or Occidental to be clear, I'm not necessarily speaking in terms of ethnicity. So I'm, you know, not describing all European people or all people that live in that Western system, but mostly a, a mindset that has been, that has changed largely um, that we've talked about. Also the inclusion of whiteness being a floating signifier that many groups have been excluded and included into that changes based off of power dynamics. So it's really kind of a a story of power dynamics and hierarchies in in the human social system and how these terms like whiteness and Western modes of thinking have been used to prop up that unhealthy power dynamic. And I think that, you know, this is something actually, oddly enough, 
Daniel, my friend Daniel and I, whom you got to meet when you came to LA, I think we went to Sage restaurant, great vegan restaurant in LA. We actually ate there last night and uh, we were having this conversation as well. A very similar vein about how can good, decent people, we'll say good, decent in terms of intelligent, in terms of relatively a a good heart, you know, they might have the desire to, to not harm people. How can they be privy to such a violent, destructive colonial system when they even have indigeneity themselves? Like we're all indigenous, maybe to somewhere. We all have that. And I believe that it relates back to that reductionist Western mentality, whereas somewhere along the lines, there was a more holistic way of relating. I call it a, a technology because I believe that it, it is something that is a tool and that has to be thought of and um, is an extension of the human psyche and body. That is a way of relating that created a, a relational geometry of sustainability and wholeness and an ability to live on this earth for thousands and thousands of years without direct collapse. There were indigenous societies like Chaco Canyon, Easter Island, Viking civilizations that experienced environmental collapse and devastation. But there were also large scale civilizations that didn't and were able to continue right up through colonial times that were not conquered. For example, like the Poripecha in Mexico area. So simultaneously, there are threads. It's not that indigenous people never adopted these toxic Western-like belief systems. And it's not that those toxic belief systems are inherently embedded in a Western mindset, but it is that this thought form, if you will, this group thought form of separateness, segmentation, dissection and reductionism has a magnetism and a pull and a hold on society. And it happens to be embedded and articulated through a language of Western science, religion, and culture. And particularly whiteness, a white supremacist system and culture, what Angela Davis calls a a white supremacist racial caste system. And it manifests differently depending on the country you're in, but particularly in the United States, it has issues of blood quantum, of skin color, of speech patterns, and of the culture that you hold largely dictates how you will get treated and the poverty that you might experience and the violence that you might experience. So to kind of loop back, why would such good people be privy to such a toxically sick system? And I think that it goes back to kind of that question with the sense organs that I always love to go back to. I feel like somewhere along the lines, that relational technology of wholeness enabled us to be privy to a layer of unseen dimension of ourself that uh, is more of an emotional, psychological layer that has, it's an empathetic layer. It's a compassionate layer. It's an ability to extend our immune system to other life forms around us beyond just people that look like us. When that was severed, I feel like it created a traumatic void. When the root was severed, when that connection, that ouroboric like eating of the tail, when that non-duality and that sacred reciprocity or that sacred circle was segmented and, and stretched out and turned into a line, and those two poles that were always touching were psychologically narrated as being on opposing ends, that is traumatic. And that is useful to a certain amount of people. The reason why that I feel like that was collapsed, that whole wholeness was collapsed down into a reductionist linear channel 
of relation is because it was a highway to pump goods, resources, matter, energy, and information from the holistic body where it was being more widely dispersed, woo, like a, a highway to a, an elite group. So once the group knew that they could funnel that off with narr narrations, with symbols, with roles, with identities and society and signifiers, it's very, very hard to get a group to choose. First of all, there's trauma in that process. And that creates a void, if you will, in a person's psyche, a darkness of a shadow. And if the ability of that system to continue operating is dependent on the fact that it has to say that that void doesn't exist, or it has to displace that pain of this, the, and the suffering of having that void onto another group so you can say that they caused it to you, and then you can oppress them and reenact power dynamics that temporarily fill the void, but only actually make it bigger. So you, you just need to continue that oppression. That is usually what enables those types of behaviors to continue because a people are walking around with gaping holes in their, in their psyche and their bodies from having that severance of the root of who we are and B they're given a bunch of toxic things to fill it with. And so I think that it's a fundamental sickness, first of all, that we don't know that we have because we don't have a, a sense organ to really perceive it. And it's a fundamental misleading of how to heal that sickness that has been used to control people. Because when people don't know that they have a sickness and it gives people power who can temporarily soothe it, it gives people unhealthy power advantage that enables them to further funnel goods and resources to them. So I feel like it's, it's kind of that fundamental sickness and then that fundamental lie of how to heal the sickness that is largely creating unhealthy reconciliations and integrations within us where we have normally good intentions. And rant. <laughs> <sighs> so, I mean, do you propose that there is a way to heal or is it specific to every person or to every community or I would say healing is going to be specific to every person in community, but there will be groups that have similar healing styles and that can support each other. But I would say one of the main healing steps that I think need to take place is first, we need to really see the state of our sickness. So I feel like society, one of the things that makes whiteness and colonization so deadly and dangerous is our society and our societal structures, our systems, our networks have been built in such a way as to obscure and distort and hide it. So it's like putting Febreze on a trash heap, you know, for a while at the top, it'll smell good, but it's just rotting and festering underneath. And so whereas in a healthy society, in a society that is more in alignment with the earth, how rich you are, how much wealth you have might be an indication of how knowledgeable and wise you are or how valuable you are in society. But because society isn't an accurate reflection on the health of its members anymore, because it's been segmented, that fragmentation is a breeding ground for delusion 
to happen because there's less coherence within the system. So there's more blind spots and areas where confusion can happen. And so people are looking for society to mirror back to them that secret relationship of a slightly larger scale of our own microcosmic individual health. And it's not. It's giving them a false image And it's giving them an image that feeds that smaller group that is funneling society and building narratives around how to sustain itself. I think that healing that relationship, first of all, making society reflect more of our authentic selves is going to be healing, but it's going to be very painful. That is the biggest obstacle to healing because to, to truly make a healing choice, which I'm also writing about this too, there's a certain element of acknowledging pain. And I think that we're really going to have to shine the light. I I really view our emotional body right now as being like emotional leprosy. I mean, we have like pustules. We have, I feel like if you've shown a light on our emotional and our psychic body and all of the, the parts that aren't seen, if you will, or directly in the manifested reality, we would have like bulging tumors and sores and sunken in eyes. And we would just be like, almost like that, um, that king in Lord of the Rings that was under the spell of like Sauron for a second, how he was just had like this heavy weight of his own toxicity and stagnation and like these tumors and this lack of flow. There's no energetic freshness. There's no flow. There's no relational clearing and stability. So everything is just heavy and growing and festering. So I think that we, if we really want to heal, we're going to have to shine the light on those emotional pustules. And I think that currently society is just giving us quick fixes so that, you know, we can yell at a person, uh, we can like pop a, a pustule and just spread the virus. And it, it might temporarily soothe us to like pop that boil, but the way that we're popping it is spreading the disease and poison over other people. So we're really at a loss of how to even heal without spreading our own disease because we're so toxic with privilege pollutants, I call them. And I think when a privilege pollutant binds to an emotional sore or an area that's festering with emotional scales and an infection, that is where so much of the disease is able to spread. And so I think that we really need to, to see how violent settler colonialism is, and we really need to see how violent white supremacy is. I mean, I'm talking like we are walking around with swords on us. It's like Edward Scissorhands. We really are in an Edward Scissorhands like state right now, trying to love and grasp one another. And I think that if we don't see, see our potential for danger and how harmful the system is, we're not going to be able to heal it. You mentioned in this essay, citing Santa Fe Institute's Jeffrey West, that it's time we direct our attention to what he calls a grand unified theory of sustainability, capable of integrating complex adaptive systems. And elsewhere, you talk about the unification of means and ends is what indigenous values are built on. And so again, it's like I find myself stopping kind of like at the edge of the Grand Canyon or something to appreciate the wholeness of that which is divided here in that I think that there is something about the koan of non-duality in what is broken that I want to continue to attend to in this conversation and what you're saying, you know, that, that this is true in 
complexity science, you know, when I listen to the researchers there talk about what they're actually looking for, a lot of them have dispensed with the idea of a grand unified theory. You know, a lot of them are looking at situational models and are looking for hidden patterns. You know, like the quest cannot stop. The the healing wants to happen. But at the same time, the very idea that we can arrive at a unification presupposes exactly the, the kind of theoretical hom- homogeneity that you are warning us against. So how do we thread the eye of the needle here when... It's like a tesseract. It's not even a three-dimensional object. It's like the needle is changing shape. <laughs> you know? Um, great question. Uh, really great question. I think that it's about tracing time and retracing time. And it's about order. I think that, true, we may never get to a place where we can all agree a unified theory, but I think that the we can get to a better place than we're at now. So we're not, you're right, maybe we're never going to be able to reach that horizon, if you will. But I think trying to unify physics, biology, mathematics, environmental science, like I think that as a discipline, we're too siloed to begin with. And I think that bridging those theories will help create Hopefully they won't be bridged with further Western scientists claiming discovery and that they bridged it. But how I kind of see the healing taking place between the disciplines coming together and creating just a, a more rigorous, comprehensive body of scientific work would be bringing indigenous wisdom and knowledge that science has already used and that this unified theory would be regurgitating and reflecting and centering it as something that is valuable and legitimate within the academy. And I think that indigenous wisdom already has that type of unification of those siloed disciplines that are all really different modes of looking at the same thing across just different scales and dimensions. And so I think that that acknowledgement is what I was speaking to there particularly is um, just taking away that same reductionist pattern, but also part of the healing. And this is very interesting as well. If you're creating a scientific world or you're writing a sci-fi novel and you're creating a, a world of your own, it reminds me of that constructing beginner's guide to constructing the universe and how it kind of all dealt with mathematical shapes and proportion And I feel like proportion is really big to creating a world because our world has limitations. It's infinite and finite at the same time. It's infinite to a certain degree, but our subjective lived reality has finite limitations. Like the sun will eventually go down. You know, night is going to come. I can only eat so much before I throw up. Like things are pretty, you know, like there's certain limits. I'm going to fall asleep eventually. I'm going to stay awake for a certain amount of time. Like there's my metabolism and the workings of nature and those proportions and harmony of the spheres, if you will, create intervals of limitations that you can either be in balance with or be in dissonance with. And that's the same culturally with order and with science. And if we, we pretty much took a copy of culture, science did largely, and erased the name, erased who thought of it, erased where they got those mathematical ideas, took the image, if you will, like with the sci-fi logo, 
you know, we don't know, took the image, thought it was cool, who knows, and used it as their own. And I feel like that is a step that wasn't supposed to happen because indigenous people, if you look at it, the metaphor that reggae music uses all the time, I planted the corn and then you came and took all my corn and uh, you didn't plant it. I did the work. You came and wanted to reap the harvest. And so indigenous people did the work there and Western people took that whole harvest. And until that step, because I do feel like time is nonlinear and we can heal the past through what we do in the present and create the future. Once we get in order, there's a, a fundamental order that was deviated from and putting things back in order, creating that sacred order, if you will, will help create a, a better understanding of science that will bridge things that have been dissected. But I, I would agree, I don't have any false like utopian ideals of a, a grand theory that is going to explain everything or be able to, it'll, it'll always have those limitations and will be a balance that will be continually sought instead of a destination that we will just someday arrive at. So to speak to nonlinearity, which obviously is a core principle of complex adaptive systems research, you know, nonlinear dynamics defines the entire field. You close this essay with a reflection on the time that you, in 2011, traveled to Ghana and were able to study Asante Adinkra symbols. And you emphasize Sankofa, which, by the way, do you remember the name of the mathematician who spoke about this at TED? Because there was a fantastic TED talk about this symbol. No, uh, uh uh. I was actually thinking of two different talks. One by Saki Mafundikwa at TED 2013 on ingenuity and elegance in ancient African alphabets. He talks about Sankofa, return and get it or learn from the past. And one by mathematician Ron Iglash at TED Global 2007 on the fractals at the heart of African designs, who is studying African villages and their fractal Uh architecture. I've seen his talk. That's a good one. Yeah. But so, you know, in both of these cases, there is a sense of what we've been doing for this entire call, right? Which is folding things back into themselves, looking back into it, the process of introspection of what WJT Mitchell called a paleontology of the present, actually digging into this moment and exploring it and finding finding the, its roots and recognizing the past as something that lives now. The future is something that lives now. This is the very premise and basis of this entire podcast. And I've noticed in finishing your essay that I have probably a over half a dozen paintings where my subject is a bird or dinosaur that is craning its neck around to look behind itself and to reflect on where it came from. I have two of them up in my home. Right now I'm looking at them. I hung one of them in my office at SFI over my desk before we closed the offices due to COVID. And I just, I want to hear you riff on Sankofa before we end this call. I want to hear you riff on being the bird that turns around to learn from where it came because there was a, you know, it's funny. I, you come up with things, you create things before you even really know what you have done and they take on a life 
that continues to deliver new meanings unto you. One of the first songs I ever wrote had a song that said, my aesthetic breaks my neck, starves my heart to feed my head. But just because I've slept alone for quite some time doesn't mean that I'm crying. That was about me turning to look at something that I had missed, you know, to reflect on lost opportunities, which is an enormous piece of what I what is going on for me at SFI. Like, why didn't I get a PhD? Why am I on this side of the fence? You know, I, I don't know. I just want to I there's there's a way to turn that from a meditation on regret. How do you understand that movement as a gesture towards wholeness through the acceptance of that, which is lost, you know, because I think both sides of this epistemological rift are going to have to come to terms with this. Like this is necessary. And how do you see that? Well, there's a few, few things that come to mind. I think one of the reasons why I, I feel like we always had a synergy or our friendship was able to form was because I feel like you really embodied that treasure hunt or that paleontology of the present, if you will, in your life. I've always seen you look at your life in that way, like digging, finding treasures, m- making meaning. And it's always been a very beautiful way of being that that has brought a lot of joy in our friendship. And I think that that is something that brings just a lot of happiness and fascination because having a friendship is is kind of like you know, we're always discovering treasures that were buried in, in our interactions and in, in the past there. And so thank you for bringing that back and kind of centering that joy of, of the process of treasure hunting and really finding your wealth. Because I feel like healing journey can sometimes feel like going through a garbage heap, but there are gems in that garbage heap. And so I think that it really speaks to that paleontologist or holy grail seeker within you. And so I think that that is a a pretty good metaphor of where I would start there is. So I, I kind of view it as I wrote a poem actually, that is about this that I'll, um, I'll share with you and people can read it if they want, but it's called holes in the body. And it's pretty much about how abuse and trauma can be like carrying hot coals in your body and your stomach that eventually are going to burn a hole through you. If you don't do something with them, if you don't build a, a container, or an organ that has bone or something strong enough to contain this hot coal, that the coals pretty much aren't supposed to be there. There's something that is placed there that isn't in its order. It's not in its right place. And so it's going to kill you. It'll eventually burn a hole right through you and you feel the pain of it burning constantly inside of you. So what are you going to do with that? You can, put your coals in somebody else's body and it'll burn them. So you don't have to deal with it. Or you can temporarily like numb yourself, like try and drug your, put something temporary that'll like be burned up and the coals can consume before it starts consuming you. Or yeah, that's pretty much your option. You can heal your own coals or you can force them and give them to somebody else. And I feel like part of the way that we have figured out how to do that is to paint the coals the color of a rainbow diamond and to offer it to someone and say, look at, this is a rainbow diamond here. You know, this is beautiful. Like, and tell a story about how amazing this diamond is, but really you're giving them your own coals and it's going to kill whoever you're giving them to. 
And then there's the other side of the coin where people have those coals in them. Maybe they didn't ask for them, but somehow epigenetically, whatever, they have these burning coals inside of them. And through their own pressure and life, they turn those coals into rainbow diamonds or the rainbow diamonds were already passed through, but they got dusty and that's how they survived because people would have taken them otherwise because there was a time when people just were going crazy to get all those rainbow diamonds of, of wisdom. And I feel like that is kind of the metaphor for looking back at your life. There's, there's an acknowledgement and a gratitude, an attitude of gratitude that recognizes that you even have diamonds of wisdom, that there is even meaning for your path. It's kind of like, I think it was Viktor Frankl that talked about man's search for meaning and how narrative and creating meaning is a big part of how we find joy and healing in life. And so a part of looking back to me is naming yourself, creating your own story and acknowledging that you even have gems and that you even have a beauty and a rainbow diamond inside of you and in your own history and that those rainbow diamonds existed enough for you to even find. And then I think being able to recognize what is real and what is fake, what is the original and what what's the blueprint and what's the copy, what's the painted fake diamond that you need to reject and that is already had its time is spent. There's no nutritive energy. There's nothing that's going to charge or fuel you in those old burning coals. They're only going to consume and burn you up versus the new gems, the gems that actually have wealth, something that actually has a crystal and structure that can have memory, that can grow new life. So being able to recognize and discern between your your diamonds and the fake painted diamonds, between your egg, what really is to be kept and what is to be let go, I think is a, a fundamental aspect of discernment that we talked about with Lilith's Brood is one of the biggest parts of waking up is determining what is the dream and what is reality. What is your diamond and what is fake? And so I think that that's going to be a big part of, of awakening and of kind of that Sankofa experience and understanding that there's no shame that you forgot that. There's no shame that you got confused and mistook the painted, painted rock of coal for your diamond. And so there's, there's a, and that is a big part for people that, that stops them because Western individualism often teaches us that it is a weakness to recognize that we've made a mistake and it takes a lot of humility and self-awareness to acknowledge that we made a mistake. And so some people will never be able to get over that because internally they, their wound is so great that And their ability to cover up their wound is so great that when they encounter the pain of their own mistake, they can't make that leap or the escape velocity in their mind to to get out of that and to go towards, all right, I made a mistake, but now I'm going to read bell hooks. I'm going to attend my weekly racial anti-racist book club. I'm going to actively pursue knowledge from indigenous people in their own words on healing. And I think that those are the, the keys to looking back that we really need to do in order to heal is that anti-racist work and really um, study and read. And every day, examine those toxic patterns within us if we're going to be able to hold our gem once we find it and carry it and, and fly to a decolonial reality where you know, we can experience deeper levels of freedom and connection that 
are only memories within us right now. That's beautiful, Violet. Thank you. And I love you. And I'm so glad that we had this conversation. I love you too, friend. Thank you for having me. It's been an honor. And um, gee, we could have a four-hour conversation because everything that you're saying, gee, I always think of things I wanted to say uh, that uh, there just wasn't time for. But what you're speaking to is um, pretty much what a lot of particularly black and brown and uh, BIPOC people of color have to live with is... um, it's a privilege to be able to disentangle your political life from your professional life, from your artistic life. Um, and oftentimes the more marginalized or oppressed a person is, the more those are intricately tightly bound and your political life will directly affect your professional, your home. Um, so I think that I'm happy that you're examining that, that privilege and kind of the power dynamics of, speaking truth to authority and how that could affect literally your ability to house your family and and to feed your family. So that's no, no small, small thing, friend. Great convo. Likewise. Likewise. Thanks again for listening. Future Fossils is an independent, entirely listener supported program. If you believe in the work that I'm doing and you want to help see it thrive into the unimaginable future, then you can avail yourself of all of the backstage goodies at patreon.com slash Michael Garfield. Or you can just leave a review at Apple Podcasts. That's more helpful than you know. Reach out to me personally at Michael Garfield on Twitter or Instagram and have a wonderful eon. 